Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Open House On Demand audio tour of Marylebone, brought to you by Open City in collaboration with the Howard de Walden Estate. My name is Merlin Fulcher and I'm the Open House Worldwide Tours Director. This Marylebone On Demand audio tour has been designed as an audio companion to your walk around Marylebone today. But you can also listen and enjoy this tour at home or wherever you might be. Marylebone is a unique quarter within the nation's capital city that exemplifies the idea of modernity from the viewpoint of the 18th century. There are 14 listening points on this guide, the first of which is at St Marylebone Parish Church. Feel free to track backwards and forwards between our chosen listening points, but please be aware there is a thought behind the order and their number. All recordings were made in 2020. If you lose your way on the tour, you can find each listening point in the episode description below and a full map where you found the Marlborough Audio Tour on the Open City website. Our guide to the history, culture and architecture of this distinctive city quarter is the architectural historian and urban explorer Mike Althorpe, also known as the London Ambler. Right now, you're standing under the impressive portico of St Marlborough Parish Church, where Mike will begin telling the story of the Howard de Walden Estate, which includes Marlborough Village, the distinctive retail and leisure destination, and Harley Street Medical Area, a world-renowned centre for medical excellence, along with some of the estate's closest neighbouring sites. Historically, this was the manor of Tyburn. These were crown lands. They were later sold by James I to the family of Edward Fawcett in the early 1600s. It became the De Vere Estate and then the Oxford Cavendish Estate. And it was Lady Henrietta Cavendish Holes and her husband, the Earl of Oxford, Edward Harley, who were responsible for the layout of Marlebone or the modern part of Marlebone in the 18th century. Later, it became the historic Portland Estate and then in the 19th century became known as the Howard de Walden Estate. We're going to be exploring both the ancient and the modern through this network of streets, taking a meandering route that will take us from where we're starting at St Marlebone Parish Church down to Portland Place. So we're starting at St Marlebone Parish Church. Uh, the current structure that you see today is completed in 1817 by architect Thomas Hardwick in a grand neoclassical style. It's the fourth such building to serve the parish of Marlebone. Up until the 1750s, this was an outlying village clinging to the River Tyburn, and it's after the river that the area gets its name. The bone bit being born, the Anglo-Saxon word for stream, the Mary being the corruption of the French Marie, the good by the stream, and so Marlebone. 
became its name. Uh, the first church was down by Oxford Street in the 12th century, and then later another church was built in the 15th century, and then that was rebuilt nearby the churchyard where we're standing in 1742, but in a very plain style. It was later demolished in 1949. The present building is a great testimony to the rapid expansion of Marlebone in the 18th century, and it was built, I suppose, to demonstrate the confidence and the new ambition of the area. It was originally constructed as a chapel of ease. Indeed, work started on a, on a plain building. It was then aggrandized and puffed up to address the new context of the expanding city north and westwards. And so it's uh, defined by this portico, which is actually wider than the body of the church with these grandiose Corinthian columns and an enlarged cupola dome. So basically, architect Thomas Hardwick was invited by the church commissioners to puff up the design to finally give Marlebone the grand church building that the neighbourhood needed. Okay, from here we're going to head east and we're going to go through an arch at the back of the Conrad shop. Listening point two, Devonshire Street. Okay, so we've come out of Devonshire Mews and we're now standing on Devonshire Street. Uh, looking eastwards, not at any one particular building, but rather to absorb the townscape, the grand sequence of streets and terraces laid out across the 18th century. This was modern Georgian Marlebone. Development started in 1719 down at Oxford Circus, and then it spread rapidly throughout the 18th century to absorb the fields and to meet the village of Marlebone. So this is classic London streetscape, the outcome of vast commercial speculation, the mass production of the townhouse that through various building acts emerged here in its most economic and efficient form. The whole thing is based on the leasehold system, like many of London's great estates, whereby the estates, the people who own the ground, the freeholder, create a master plan for streets and sewers, and then they divide the plots. The plots are then sold to building teams on a lease basis, who build out the houses and terraces according to a three-dimensional envelope of building heights and elevations, and once built, they're then sold for up to 60 to 100 years and when that term of the lease expires there's an opportunity to redevelop and recalibrate the area and as we explore Marlebone village we'll be seeing numerous examples of where this has occurred where a new type of architecture has replaced an older form. Okay we're going to head west from here along Devonshire Street towards Marlebone High Street our next point. Listening point three Marlebone High Street, the heart of Marlebone Village. So we're on Marlebone High Street, standing at the junction with Paddington Street. So this was the heart of the ancient village of Marlebone. And it's a street that in the last 300 years has taken on various characters and forms. To our north was the historic Marlebone Manor. So this was at the top of what was a rural lane connecting the fields of Tyburn with Oxford Street to the south. And the manor itself only came down as recently as 1791 as the area rapidly urbanized. In the 18th century, as the area expanded, the high street was populated uh, with a mixture of buildings, uh, of shops, of pubs, and of lodgings houses above. Uh, but it was in the 19th century, the late 19th century, 
that it really gained the character and form that you see today. And this was the result of a big plan of reconstruction launched by the Howard de Walden estate in the 1890s. So 100 years after many of the first buildings were built, uh, there was a new architecturally ambitious plan. And in this plan, there was a new look for architecture. And so the character of the high street today is this rich red brick renaissance and Queen Anne revival style. So the high street that we see today is a result of a very conscious reconstruction led by the Howard de Walden estate in the 1890s. In this plan, the old high street was rebuilt and replaced by a grandiose sequence of Renaissance and Queen Anne revival style blocks with lots of shaped gables in red brick and white painted windows with ornamental bays and statues. In the 1990s, the high street was revamped again, but it wasn't just about attracting upmarket retailers. It was about creating an area that would stand out from the crowd by proactively seeking out a complementary blend of small independent shops and established brands, all of which offered quality and distinctiveness to make it a destination with genuine balance and character, unlike so many other identical high streets. Today, the high street's been refurbished yet again with the aim of creating a more humane pedestrian environment with sustainable urban drainage and planted gardens, wider pavements and many buildings reconstructed behind the historic facades. We're going to head westwards now down Paddington Street and then after number 57, take a quick left into Grotto Passage. Listening point four, Grotto Passage. Named after the Great Grotto, a small Georgian pleasure garden of the 18th century. As the area urbanised, the streets here developed haphazardly in contrast to the strict grid of the streets that we were just previously in. So here behind the high street, there was a tight maze of courts, alleyways and lanes with lodgings and tenements built over the yards and gardens of the 18th century houses. During the first half of the 19th century, the population of Marlebone was soaring. It was around 160,000, double what it is today and this network of alleyways essentially became a slum. The buildings that we're looking at were erected as part of philanthropic efforts to improve the district. On the west side, uh, the white painted building, is the Grotto, the ragged industrial schools erected in 1846 through charitable donations. The greatest physical change occurred after the 1870s when the area was condemned and the historic Portland estate went into partnership with a commercial developer under the name the Portland Industrial Dwellings Company Limited. The outcome was the model dwellings that you see today, these London stock buildings known as the Ossington Estate, which were erected between 1888 and 1892 for the working poor. Great examples of early social housing in the area and managed by Octavia Hill, a very important figure in the story of social housing in the UK. We're now going to head west down Ossington Buildings towards the Paddington Street Gardens. Listening point five, Paddington Street Gardens. We're on the western limits of the Howard de Walden estate and to our west, the backs of buildings marks the historic boundary between what was the Portland estate and its neighbour, the Portman estate. And that line is also the route of the River Tyburn. The gorgeous garden that we're standing in is laid out in the 1880s. It stands on the site of what was the parish burial ground and underneath us are around 100,000 bodies buried here between 1733 and 1814. This was an edgelands. This was a place where the unfortunate consequences of the booming population of the Georgian city came to bear. 
Alongside the burial ground in 1752, this was also the site of the local workhouse. Originally built to accommodate 40 inmates, it expanded to include an infirmary later in the 18th century and expanded again in the 19th century to accommodate, at one point, around 2,200 people, both adults and children. Workhouses were tough places. These were essentially Georgian and Victorian welfare systems. In the 1880s, as the workhouse was rebuilt and the model dwellings to our east were being reconstructed, the gardens were laid out and the tombstones were cleared away. Uh, the last one that survives is the Fitzpatrick Mausoleum, dating from 1759, which was kept in order to create an ornament and focal point for the new civic gardens. We're now going to leave the gardens uh, to the south via Moxon Street and continue onto Abrook Street. Listening point six, Manchester Square. A classic 18th century London square and one of the centrepieces of the Howard de Walden's great neighbours, the Portman Estate, which lies just to the west. Development of the square started in 1776 by the Duke of Manchester, and it's after him that the square gets its name. He built the houses that you see on the south side, and on the north of the square, he built Manchester House with architect Joshua Brown, today the Wallace Collection. Despite the square being named after him, the Duke didn't hang out too long. The house was sold to the Marquis of Hartford, becoming Hartford House. In the early 19th century, it was the site of the Allied Sovereign's Ball. That was the official after-party of the Battle of Waterloo. Later in the 19th century, the fourth Marquis of Hartford extended the house, giving it its classic Italianate look and feel. He spent most of his time in France collecting furniture, armories and paintings. And his son, Richard Wallace, did the same in the 1870s, sending back vast amounts of collections, which meant that the building had to be extended again and again. When he died in 1890, the house and its contents were gifted to the nation and it opened as the Wallace Collection, the public museum we know today. We're now going to head east out of the square on Hyde Street. Listening point seven, Hind and Mandeville Street. We're now moving eastwards down Hind Street and before us a fabulous mixed townscape and at the centre of this organic composition the fabulous Hind Street Methodist Church, miraculously a chapel completed in 1887 by the architect James Weir who was the go-to architect for Methodism in the late 19th century. This neoclassical building is quite untypical for the late 19th century, an era defined by Gothic revival. And as architecture goes, it's a bit of a hybrid with several things going on. We have a double-height portico, a miniature version of St Paul's Cathedral, if you like. But at its corner is a spire in rich Derbyshire stone, which is an almost exact replica of St Martin's in the Fields. The building is the second to stand on the site. The first simple brick structure was located in a series of back streets. The building we see today came about as a result of an 1870s urban clearance project with Mandeville Place driven southwards to connect Marlebone High Street to the north to Wigmore Street to the south. In doing so, the chapel became prime real estate and so this is a building that is rising to its new occasion. The architecture of the new Mandeville Street is quite unlike anything else in the area. It's a mixture of French Renaissance styles. At its top, there are handsome Second Empire mansard roofs and steelwork, and at the bottom, porticoed porches of a classic London style, another hybrid.
We're now going to head south onto Marlebone Lane to our next point, which is one of Marlebone's newest landmarks, the Schoen Clinic. Listening point eight, Schoen Clinic. This is actually uh, the London branch of an international spinal surgery created by architects ESA in 2018, fulfilling a brief to create surgery space inside, but this is a building with hidden depths playing a much wider urban role. It's a huge building, but you wouldn't know it. Behind this series of modern facades and elevations is a deep site carved out of the site of a 19th century ironworks. But here on the street, it's something of a shapeshifter, breaking down into a number of different elevations, which are bringing together the life and mixity of Marlebone Lane with the refinement and order of Wigmore Street, where we're standing at the center of the composition is a great 17-ton, 50-foot-high stainless steel sculpture entitled Quadrilinea by artist Lee Simmons, made of five layers of laser-cut steel standing four stories tall. This sculpture is actually playing a wider urban role, and this is building as wayfinder and as marker. So it's announcing the start of Marlebone Lane and Marlebone Village to its north, to those arriving from the south appropriately for a building that works as an urban marker. The sculpture is based on a series of deconstructed maps of historic Marlebone, with all the lines suggesting historic and new streets and the patchwork of long lost fields. We're now going to continue eastwards, just a few yards, towards our next point of interest, and that is the Colossus of Wigmore Street, the original Debenhams department store. Listening point nine. Debenhams and Wigmore Hall. While Oxford Street to the south developed as a premier place to shop for the masses, in the 19th century, Wigmore Street was the place to shop if you were a smart upper-class lady in particular. The great monument to its preeminence is the building that we're standing opposite, the original Debenhams department store, designed by architects William Wallace and James Gibson in 1907 in a grandiose, overblown Edwardian Baroque style. It stands on the site of the original linen and lace store set up in 1813. It was intended to attend to the needs of the noble ladies of Marlebone. In this early 20th century redesign, its lavish detailing and sculptures are all intended to suggest refinement, taste and opulence. In the words of 1970s Marlebone historian Gordon Mackenzie, he describes the building as swathed in a sort of architectural tea gown of Dalton white Carrera tiles. It breathes an infinitely leisurely atmosphere as of Edwardian great ladies going about their lawful and opulent occasions in some golden afternoon outside of time. On the theme of golden afternoons, on the north side of Wigmore Street, directly opposite, is Wigmore Hall, celebrated 1901 concert venue created by architect Thomas Edward Colcutt the architect behind the Savoy and the sumptuous extravagant Palace Theatre down at Cambridge Circus. Here you can see the same red brick and terracotta palette, but a much more demure and restrained style. We're going to head south on Welbeck Street and take a left into Henrietta Place for our next stop. Listening point 10, Henrietta Place. We've now drifted off the Howard de Walden estate and we're on Henrietta Place, just north of Oxford Street at the top of Veer Street, a place of architectural collision points and a backstreet condition with great architectural contrast. The chief landmark 
is the chocolate box St. Peter's Vere Street, or originally the Oxford Chapel, created in 1724 as one of the landmarks of the original Cavendish Holes estate. This building was designed by James Gibbs and is one of the oldest surviving buildings on the historic estate and one of the most completely original buildings of its kind in the West End. Gibbs's simple brown brick design with a very restrained portico on its west facade was said to be a prototype or a design canvas, if you like, for the building that he's more famous for, and that's St. Martin's in the Fields, which was completed a few years later. Today, this diminutive little 18th century building is dramatically overshadowed by its 20th century neighbours and the life of Oxford Street to the south. Looming up behind it to the east is the faded glamour of the House of Fraser's streamlined flagship of 1935 by Louis Blanc, while to the north is the hulking mass of the Royal Society of Medicine, created in 1912 by J.J. Joas, a building that the Survey of London describes as blending grandeur and severity in a manner fashionable during the first years of George V's reign. 1970s Marlborough historian Gordon Mackenzie goes on to describe this building as Roman monumentality marred by machine age motifs. We're now going to continue eastwards down Henrietta Place to our next point at Cavendish Square. Listening point 11, Cavendish Square. This was one of the first historic moves of the old Cavendish Oxford estate or the historic Portland estate. This was started in 1719, led by Lady Henrietta Cavendish Holes and her husband Lord Harley. Earl of Oxford. Despite the wealth of the new development, at the start of the 18th century, this place took some time to come together. The original idea was for a great London mansion, a big palace that would define the whole development. But developers proved reluctant to take on the grand mansion to the north, instead developing smaller townhouses to the south, east and west. And so the north side for many years was left open. The estate owners tried to persuade Lord Chandos, who is one of England's wealthiest people, to take on the site, but instead he built only two matching corner houses on the east and west side. The centre of the site was sold to the Deletante Society in the 1740s, who proposed the grand design for Academy of Antiquity, modelled on a great Istrian temple. But this was never built. The land was sold again and finally in the 1770s, around 50 years later, the centre was finally completed with a pair of grand Palladian stone-fronted townhouses that you see today. Together, a mansion of sorts. The arch was only added in 1953 as part of the rebuilding of the convent of the Holy Child of Jesus, hence the sculpture of Madonna and Child by acclaimed British sculptor Jacob Epstein. We're going to exit Cavendish Square by the northeast side and head northwards onto Chandos Street for our next point. Listening point 12, Chandos House. Built between 1769 and 1771 by Robert Adam, this was a speculative venture led by his development family. It's extraordinary not just for its fine Greek-inspired architectural detail, notably that scene on the porch and the Adam Order columns and capitals with the ram's headed frieze and the Vitruvian scroll, but also for its bold materiality. This is Craigleaf stone from Edinburgh, and as such this is a completely unique piece of architecture for London in this part of Marlborough. The building then is a Scottish outsider. This is the material that defines the new town of Edinburgh, 
So this building was actually constructed as, as an advert for the Adam Brothers, for their work, their craftsmanship, and for their commercial ventures, which were just taken off in the area. This then was a statement building, and to give some indication of its power, uh, these are the words from Ian Nen writing in 1964. Ian Nen, one of the great critics of post-war England. It is hardly worth a notice at first, from Cavendish Square just a plain end to a short street, then it catches a light like a slow fire, and by the time you're in front of it, the great stillness is shouting down all surrounding blether, old and new, and the new blether around here takes some shouting down. It was simply four bays and three stories of severe brown stone, but it was designed by Robert Adam, and when his immense talent could discipline itself to a shoe snippets, as it did in Edinburgh, the result is unforgettable. Sheer proportion, a silence that speaks volumes. The first owner of the house was the Duke of Chandos, he was a big society figure and for the next hundred years or so this was the scene of many lavish parties. But in the 20th century this building had fallen into a state of disrepair. So much so that it was placed on the English Heritage Buildings at Risk List. In 2002 the Howard de Walden estate were instrumental in saving the house by purchasing up the lease and then in 2005 it reopened after a £5 million restoration programme. We're now going to head westwards on Queen Anne Street to our next point. Listening point 13, Harley Street. We're now on Harley Street, the centre of the Harley Street medical area, a community of Marlebone-based hospitals, clinics and specialists renowned for patient care, pioneering treatments and the use of 21st century cutting-edge technologies. Originally laid out in 1729 with Wimpole Street, they were both intended to be at the heart of the new modern Marlebone of the 18th century, but they took many decades to be complete. Part of the Marlebone grid, these dead straight streets were some of the largest in London at the time and were completed in a matching brown brick with flat fronted facades. Grand yet uniform and simple with a datum of window lines and wrought iron balconies which set the tone for the whole of the area in the 18th century. Refined and outstanding example of Georgian good manners, of grace, of harmony and high standards of classical inspired urban design. When it was completed, it attracted a mixed strata of upper society and wealthy merchant classes, but also private doctors and medicos, who in the 18th century brought their rapidly developing modern science out to a thoroughly modern bit of city where there was space to practice, in contrast to the cramped old city out to the east. By the middle of the 19th century, this practice had evolved from fewer than 20 private doctors to around 300 just prior to the First World War with a mix of clinics, chemists and suppliers in most of the streets in the neighbouring area, gaining an international reputation for specialist medical expertise that continues to this day. Behind the many listed Georgian and Victorian facades are some of the most extraordinary feats of architecture, engineering and science. One of the most spectacular is that to the north of the streets at number 141, where a 15 metre basement created behind and underneath two grade two listed houses conceals an enormous proton accelerator used in cancer treatments and created specifically to work within the Marlebone townscape by Swiss engineers at CERN, the same people behind the Hadron Collider, an incredible marriage of Georgian architecture and 21st century technology. The townscape that we're looking at today was the outcome of a concerted effort by the Howard de Walden estate in the 1890s that encouraged the replacement of individual houses to create a new level of architectural dynamism. As a result, on Harley Street and Wimpole Street, 
as an eclectic mix of styles that broke up the uniformity or the monotony, as many of the Victorians viewed it, of long Georgian brick terraces. Listening point 14, Portland Place, our final stop on this architectural tour around Marlevin. We're now on the eastern fringe of the Howard de Walden estate on Portland Place, developed in the 1780s. This is part of the second wave of development of the area and the historic Portland estate. At 125 feet, this is one of the widest streets in London. It's quite unlike most streets in the area. It has the feel of a continental European boulevard. Its uncommon width is actually the outcome of an agreement between the historic Portland estate and Lord Foley, who had the house at the southern end. And its exceptional width is based on an agreement hatched between the historic Portland estate and their developers, Robert and James Adam. In this agreement, the estate promised not to interrupt the northern view from Foley House towards the fields of Marlebone Park. And so the street is as wide as the historic Foley House was. Originally, the street was an elongated square in the continental manner, and the original intention for it was a series of freestanding detached mansions in a manner that historian Arthur Bolton describes as a strada de palazzi. However, economic uncertainty meant that in the end it was developed as a more economic series of palace terraces. The best surviving example of these terraces is between number 34 and 52 on the east side. Completed in 1780 and designed by James Adam, the terrace gives some indication of what the whole street once looked like, with eight matching terraces that each had three-part palace facades with a decorated plaster centerpiece with pediment and Greek-inspired details, plain middles, and then at either end matching pavilions with lots of use of stucco and column details. For over a century, Portland Place was one of London's most exclusive residential streets and was gated at its northern end. Big changes occurred in the 1820s as architect planner John Nash threw open the space as part of the creation of Regent Street to the south and then in the 1860s with the creation of the grandiose Langham Hotel. In the 20th century, the big, expensive-to-run houses had lost their appeal and apartment blocks started to creep in. And slowly, over time, the street gained a more institutional air, with buildings such as the BBC in 1932 and in 1934, one of the icons of the street, the HQ of the Royal Institute of British Architects. So we're now at the centre of Portland Place, the middle of the street, and we're standing opposite the HQ of the Royal Institute of British Architects, the ROBA. Completed in 1934, a landmark stripped classical design by architect Gray Warnham in one of the most celebrated interwar buildings. On the south facade facing Weymouth Street, up on the fourth floor, a series of figures representing the craftsmen and trades that made this building possible. And at the centre, someone not unlike Christopher Wren, representing the architect at the centre of those professions. While back out onto Portland Place, a sculpture by Bainbridge Cocknell, representing the spirit of architecture, flanked by male and female figures looking skyward. On behalf of Open City and the Howard de Warden Estate, Mike and I would like to thank you for listening. And we hope to be with you again, either here in Marlebone or on another on-demand audio tour of London. We'd also like to give a special thanks to the Howard de Warden Estate for their support in keeping the history of the area alive and all their work in creating and maintaining such a unique and varied community right in the centre of London. If you have any questions concerning the estate, please visit the Howard de Warden website. 
If you enjoyed listening to the Open House On Demand audio tour of Marylebone and would like to hear more of our audio guides about the rich cultural, historical and architectural fabric of London, please like and subscribe wherever you found this podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.